a Bible, let me encourage you to grab it and make your way to the book of Exodus, continuing our series through uh, the book of Exodus. We'll be at the end of chapter 2. We'll be at the beginning of, well, we'll do all of chapter 3 today. Um, But behold our God, the song that we just sang, that is what we are going to do very much today. We're going to be just zeroing in on who God is and what He is like. And it's super important that we do that um, particularly right now, while we're still kind of early on in the book. Because if you think about uh, a long-distance flight, like my brother is in the Air Force, he used to have to fly you know, planes all the way to the Middle East. It's 24-hour, non-stop, refuel in the air. And you can imagine, when you are going to be going that far in one direction, it is super important that you get all, like you, you have your coordinates set Exactly right, because if you are off even just a fraction of a degree, well, in a short little distance, it may not be that big of a deal, but over thousands and thousands and thousands of miles, that can add up and you're going to be way, 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 way off course. And when we come to Scripture, it is very much the same principle. If we get off on thinking that it's some other thing, if we, if we try to read the Bible as if it is man focus, it's an anthropocentric, it's all about us, then we are going to be way, way, way off course. Because the Bible is not primarily about us. The book of Exodus that we're studying right now is not primarily about us or about Moses or about Israel. The book of Exodus, the Bible is primarily about God. That is what the Bible is primarily about, God. And if we were to miss it, if we're going to, you know, we're going to be off course, we're going to find ourselves way, way, way off course if we miss that early on. And so we've been talking the last several weeks just trying to emphasize this. The book of Exodus is about God. It is about the story of the God who rescues. And we've seen glimpses of that in chapters 1 and chapters 2. We've seen how God has been working behind the scenes and Silent sovereignty, backstage, moving people, moving situations to accomplish what he wants. But now as we come to the end of chapter 2, when we enter into chapter 3, God's centrality is going to become very much like up front, in our face, in living color. As God speaks from the burning bush, revealing himself to Moses. And so this morning, what I want to do is I just want to really kind of camp out on who God is and what He's like. Almost like kind of coordinates points to make sure we are tracking the right way. Who God is and what He's like. And so to do that, I want to just read the whole thing in full from the start today. And then we'll come back and we'll connect some dots. We'll connect these coordinate points. Who God is and what He's like. So if you have your Bible, read with me, starting in chapter 2, verse 23. Context, remember, Hebrews have been slaves in Egypt for like 400 years. Moses is a guy who was born a Hebrew, adopted into Pharaoh's family. When he was 40, he decided to go back and be with the Hebrews. He killed a guy, he fled to Midian, And there he's been for another 40 years in Midian, being a husband and a dad and a shepherd. 
and God molding him through all of this. So he's 80 years old, an octogenarian. Verse 23 of chapter 2. During those many days, this is when Moses is in Midian, that's the many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he let, we met him last week by the name Ruel. He's also Jethro. Two names. A lot of you guys have two names. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. We're going to see that renamed later also Mount Sinai. Same, same mountain. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, like we would, I will turn aside and uh, see this great sight, why, why this bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Now, just real quick, verse 2 says the angel of the Lord. All right, this is not a you know, fluffy little angel with a golden diaper. This thing is appearing to him out of fire. And he's referenced as the Lord, all caps, in verse 4. And he speaks as God, not just for God. <clears throat> so what theologians call this, think what's happening right here, is something called a theophany. A theophany, this is an appearance of God. Most people, especially early church fathers, think that this is actually a Christophany, which is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ serving in his role as a mediator. Other places you see this in the Old Testament, it's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's someone in the furnace with them. Uh, the angel of the Lord with Joshua. That might be a theophany. Um, the, the strangers that come and visit, Mo, uh, visit Abraham. All this to say, regardless here, something major is going on. God is revealing Himself to Moses. And notice, Moses is not looking for God. He's not on a pilgrimage. He's not on some spiritual quest. He's out doing his everyday job, just shepherding. God comes to him. That's the way it works with us as well. God comes to us. God comes after us. God is doing this. <clears throat> so verse 4. When the Lord saw that He turned aside to see, God called to him, out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. 
And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land, up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And then Moses said to God, If I I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. And so this is the flow of the story. And we're going to pick the flow of the story up again next week when we get into chapter 4 because this dialogue between Moses and God continues well on into chapter 4. So the overall flow of the story will pick back up next week. But what I want, like, even as I just read, did you see some of the little coordinate dots of who God is? And what he's like. There's a slew of them in there. We're going to hit seven of them today. I'm going to uh, try to condense uh, some of them a little bit. But there's seven of them. And the first one that I think is maybe the most obvious one. Something we learn about God straight from the beginning here. Most obvious is that, and this is number one in your notes, God speaks. God speaks. Like out of the burning bush, he audibly reveals himself to Moses. And this just highlights that it has to be God, like he has to be the one to reveal himself. 
If God does not specially reveal Himself to us, then all we can know about God is just what we can observe, which is enough to like see that there is a God, but it's not enough to know anything about who this God is. Like when you look out in the world, you look at creation, you look at the heavens, you look at the solar system and, and how everything's put together perfectly. There's, there's a documentary, non-Christian documentary on television right now from the BBC called uh, Our Perfect Planet. And it just goes through all the details of how things have to work just perfectly for life. You look at all that. You look at the, Dr. Fred would know this, the complexity of an eye. You look at the complexity of DNA. All of these things show us like there has to be, like it didn't just happen. You can't put, you know, pieces of a watch in a Ziploc bag, shake it up for long enough and have it turn into a watch. It's not going to happen. So there has to be an intelligent design. But our observation can only tell us there has to be something behind this. It can't tell us anything about that intelligent designer. For that, we need more than general revelation. We need what's called special revelation. And that is what God speaking is. It is His special revelation. And so Moses, I mean, he had no Bible, right? There was no written word at this time. Now, he's going to write the first five books of the Bible, but at this time, there's none of that. He hasn't done that yet. And so God spoke audibly to him. For us, we do have the complete written word, the full canon. And so this is how God speaks to us today. He speaks to us through His Word. Now, sure, the Holy Spirit nudges us, and, you know, nudges us this way, nudges us that way, but He will never nudge us in any way that contradicts His Word. God speaks to us through His Word. He reveals Himself to us through His Word. And so listen to me, that means that He defines who he is not us we don't define who god is god defines who god is so we don't say you know well you know i think uh, to me god's just like nature or to me god is like my definition of love well to me i look like dwayne the rock johnson but that doesn't make it true we don't define god god defines god and he does that by speaking. And primarily today, by speaking through his word. So God speaks. One of the ways he defines himself, and this is number two in your notes, is as holy. So number two in your notes, God is holy. Look at verse four again. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside, that is Moses, to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. God is holy. All right? And when he says that the ground is holy, it's not like that dirt isn't holy in and of itself. That mountain isn't holy in and of itself. It's holy because God's there. It's God that makes a place holy. Places don't have holiness 
sacredness just in and of themselves. This is just carpet. This was woods behind a house. This place isn't holy because of the place. It's holy because of the presence of God. So underneath a tree can be holy if God is there. This mountain wasn't holy in and of itself. God was there. That made it holy. And this idea of holiness, I think the fire like in the bush here is a great metaphor for the holiness of God. Because like a moth to a flame, we are drawn to fire. Like we love fire. Fire amazes us. That's why many of you, even in this room, watching on uh, live stream, have a fire pit in your backyard. Some of you have the fancy, nice rock ones. I've just got this little metal disc that burns my grass every single time I use it. But we love fire pits. We love to gather around the fire. We're amazed by fire. But we also tell our kids, don't play with fire. It's the same thing with God. We are amazed by God, but you don't play with God. We are amazed by God. But we take Him very, very seriously. It's just like we do fire. He is holy. And the idea of holiness like, literally means separated. That's what it is. It's a separated thing. Like Holiness is not simply perfection. Not simply you know, righteousness. It is that. But it's also like this just complete separate otherness. Like God is just completely separate from us. He is completely other from us. It's the di- distinction between creator and creation. It's the distinction between deity and humanity. This is who God is. He is holy. He is other. He is different. And when Moses asks him what his name is, the mysterious answer that God gives just further hammers this home. And so Moses asks him, what's your name? God, verse 14 of chapter 3, replies, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so number three in your notes, God is I am. God is, I am. And I get that that does not make grammatical sense. And that's kind of the point. God cannot be controlled or or hemmed in by rules of grammar, by a theological system. He can't be ruled in. He busts out of those things. He is too big. He explodes these things. Well, then what, what does it mean, I am who I am? Well, for one, it is a proper name. It is a proper noun. All right, I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But the first thing is just, it's mysterious to us. We say, I am that I, that I am. I am who I am. Like, that's mysterious. And Moses probably spent the rest of his life trying to figure out what that means. And Bible scholars have been spending the last 3,000 years trying to figure out all that that means, all that that entails. And again, I think that's kind of the point. We can't fully understand infinity we are finite we can't understand all that it's beyond us but certainly i think it at least indicates again god's otherness that he is completely separate it indicates his independence 
his self-sufficiency, his self-existence. As we translate this, I am, it comes from the Hebrew verb that means to be. And so it could even be translated, I am who I will be, or I will be who I am. And it just underscores, again, this, the, the most basic fact you can know about God, and that is that He is different than us. He is not like us. He is not a creature. He's Creator. He wasn't brought into existence by anyone or anything. He's always been. He self-exists. He self-sustains. See, like we, we are all dependent. Everyone in this room, we are all dependent. We, we need basic things of life. Uh, food, water, shelter, right? We've got to have these basic things. If we don't, like if you go out uh, on a cold night, you know, in, in the wintertime, you're going to die of hypothermia. We are fragile people. We are vulnerable people. We, are, we age. We grow old. We get sick. We die. Like We know these things. We are vulnerable. We exist because of God. And we are totally dependent upon God and His creation for life. But God doesn't need anything. He's not vulnerable. He's not fragile. He's not in need of warmth on a cold night. He's not in need of food or water or shelter. He's in need of nothing. He's independent. He isn't caused. Again, I think the, 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 the fire in the burning bush shows us a little bit of this independence. Because what Moses saw, what was so amazing to him is like it's on fire, but the fire's independent of the bush. Like the bush isn't burning. Like typically when you have a fire, you've got to feed it fuel. It has to keep going. But this was not a fire that needed any fuel. It was just burning on its own. It was self-existing. It was self-caused. It was self-sustained. Its heat and its light was derived from itself, not from fuel. And that's God. The uncreated Lord. He made all things, and on Him all things depend, but He Himself needs nothing, depends on no one. And because He will be who He will be, this also means that God is faithful. I will be who I will be. Like He will not change. Since He will not change, He will forever be faithful. Great, we, some of you know this, this hymn. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of changing with thee. He doesn't change. Therefore, he's faithful. And so God's name encompasses kind of all of this. His mysteriousness, his independence, his self-existence, his faithfulness, his power. But as I said, it's also a proper name. And it's probably pronounced Yahweh. When you look in Scripture, it's probably in, in Hebrew, it's probably called, it's probably pronounced Yahweh. But the Jews were so scared of taking the Lord's name in vain, maybe something we could learn a little bit about. They probably went a little too far, but we could probably go a little bit the other direction, learn a little bit. So scared of taking the Lord's name in vain that they would never actually say the name Yahweh. Instead, they would always substitute in the word Lord. 
which in Hebrew is Adonai. They would always sub in Adonai for Yahweh. And so whenever you see all caps LORD in the Bible, that's Adonai substituted in for Yahweh. That's, that's, what, it, that's what it is. And, and LORD, all caps, is not like a title. It's not like, you know, something from Downton Abbey or Shrek with Lord Farquhar. It's not a title of someone. It's, it is a proper name, a proper noun, substituting in Adonai for Yahweh. Somebody's like, well, what about, what about Jehovah? I thought that was God's name. Well, Jehovah is a, is a kind of pseudoname. It's, it's a combination of the Hebrew letters for Yahweh with the vowels from Adonai, and you put that all together, and that's Jehovah. That's where that comes from. It's a kind of an error from the medieval church that still tracks with us today. But the most important, like more important than all of that, is just remember, when you see all caps, LORD, when you are reading Scripture, that means Yahweh. It is a proper name. And it's a reference to like all that that name entails. Self-existence, mystery, power, might, faithfulness. The great I am. That's who God is. And he terrified Moses. Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. And yet, this mysterious, all-powerful, terrifying, big, huge God of all things brought Moses comfort and should bring us comfort because with all his power all his strength we see that God cares for his people that God loves his people like this God this Yahweh burning bush I am who I am cares for his people loves his people I mean, look back at the end of chapter 2. There are four verbs used to describe God here. Things that God is doing. They just come in quick succession that really, that really describe to us like what God is like. Who God is, what God is like. Four verbs in quick succession. They're repeated in chapter 3 as well, but they're packed so closely in chapter 2. Let's look at chapter 2 and draw these out for the rest of uh, our, our notes in our sermon guide. And so look, chapter 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And so, friends, as we are looking at who God is and what He's like, know, number uh, four in your notes, that God hears you. Like God hears. Particularly, He hears your prayers and your cries. Now, Sunday school time. How long have the Israelites been in slavery? Sunday school time means talk to me. 
400 years. 400 years. And so there must have been time that the children of Israel were like, uh, God, are you hard of hearing? We're, we're crying out to you. There's nothing happening. I mean, for decades, for centuries, they cried out to God for deliverance and nothing happens. And so they had to wonder, where are you, God? And we wonder that too in our own lives sometimes. We're crying out about something. We're praying about something. We're not seeing any movement in this. God's not answering according to our expectations. And we wonder, where are you, God? My friends, in our lives, just as it was in the lives of the Israelites, it's not that God just suddenly was like, oh, suddenly, you know, I'm going to jump into action here. Suddenly, I hear their cries. No, He's been working all along. He's been hearing their prayers all along. But now it's the time for the next step. But it's not that He didn't hear. It's not that He wasn't working. He didn't see the things He was doing. We talked about this before. God works with two hands in history. The visible hand of miracles, and we're about to see a bunch of those, but primarily through the invisible hand of His silent sovereignty. But it's still God working. And so always remember, like your prayers, even when you don't feel, they are not, they never fall on deaf ears. God hears every one of them. The Bible tells us that He stores up our tears in a bottle. He hears you. Stay in it. Stay with it. And the reason God hears you is because God cares for His suffering servants. God cares for His suffering saints deeply, including you and I. But not only does God hear you, verse 24, the next verb we get is God, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so number five in your notes, God remembers His covenant. God remembers His covenant. Now covenant's a big word. What does covenant mean? Basically means unbreakable promise. It's not a contract. It's an unbreakable promise. God keeps both sides of it. If it's up to us, we break our side. God keeps both sides. And maybe the best definition of covenant that I could ever give to you comes from the Jesus Storybook Bible. And it's God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love for His people. God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love for His people. And when it says that God remembers his covenant, remembered His covenant, it's not like God forgot. He's omniscient. He can't forget. It's impossible. So it's not like He's up in heaven and He's going along and He's thinking about His day. What do I need to do today? He's like, oh, I forgot. i got to keep the covenant. Oh, it's been 400 years. Sorry, I'll keep it now. Like, That's not God. It could not possibly be God. Rather, when it says that God remembered, it means that He acted upon it. It's an ever-present reality. And now He's acting upon the promise that He made. It means it's go time. Like, I've promised deliverance. I'm going to bring it now. It is time to bring the deliverance. 
Like covenant, there's big covenants, covenants of grace, there's a new covenant. I'm not going to, we probably need to do a sermon on covenants overall. But within covenants, there's smaller covenants, and he's going to fulfill even a piece of a covenant from Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not their own, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. God keeps His promises. He remembers His covenant. And here's what's super good news about the fact that God remembers His covenant. Like that, that God does these things. That God rescues His people then and now. Here's what's good news. He doesn't do it based on his people's merit. He doesn't do it based upon them like toe in the line and, and, and full, perfect obedience. He doesn't do it because they pray enough, because they're earnest enough. He does it because he's promised to do it. He does it because he's made a covenant with them. Which means for us, like when we blow it, God doesn't quit. His love, His care for you is unconditional. You know what that means? Unconditional. Not condition-based. Oh, you did it again. I'm, I'm done. It's not how God deals with His people. It's not how God deals with His people. And so, dear friends, remember God's covenant. Like He remembers it, and we need to remember it too. It's a promise from the great I Am to with all His heart do good towards His people. Culminating most ultimately in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus to rescue us from our sin. Give us eternal life. And so when you face dark days, remember God's covenant, His love, His grace towards you, and remember that God remembers His covenant as well. All right? Also, verse 25 then shows us, it says, God saw the people of Israel. So God hears His people. God remembers His covenant. Now, God saw the people of Israel. So number six, God sees. God sees. And what He sees is our need. God sees our need. He's in just up in heaven. Holy Spirit, Jesus, come here. Look down there. Who's in that interest? That's not how He works. He doesn't just see. See means He engages with compassion and grace and care. This is who God is. All of these things. A transcendent, holy, unapproachable God and an imminent, close at hand, Emmanuel, God with us right here, God. Grace and care and kindness and mercy and compassion and fatherly love. And when he sees his people in grief, he is moved with compassion for his people. He's not detached. He's not aloof from you. These are false ideas that we come in. I'm not good enough. God couldn't be close. I've sinned in this way. I'll go and clean myself up. Then I can... That is not... That is not... Scripture.
I mean, very much like God's care for us is from what Steve read in our New Testament reading today. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest, talking about Jesus, who is unable... We don't have one who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. If you've been here over the last several months, you know I've been, just as we've kind of pumped the Jesus Storybook Bible, encouraging everybody to get one, not just for your kids, but for you as an adult. I mean, we helped outline the sermon series through the Jesus Storybook Bible. Get that, read that. Read it to your kids. Read it yourself. It helps tie together the whole story. But we've also been pumping, uh, like just personally in my own reading, uh, a book called um, Gentle and Lowly. It's in your resources again today. I read it in the fall. I can't encourage you to enough. Buy that book. Read that book. Short, easy to read probably the best encouraging for my heart, not like a theology book, an encouraging for my heart book I've read in the last 15 years. Maybe ever in my own life. Get it. Read it. You will be blessed and helped. But in that book, there's an entire chapter devoted to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. An entire chapter. And what was probably most profound for me, one of the biggest takeaways for me personally, is this chapter, or is this paragraph from the chapter. Here's what he writes. The burden of this verse, talking about Hebrews 4.15, if we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. The burden of this verse is Jesus Christ's sheer solidarity with His people. See, all our natural intuitions tell us that Jesus is with us on our side, present and helping when life is going well. But Hebrews 4.15 says the opposite. It says that it is in our weaknesses, in our weakness, that Jesus sympathizes with us. And the word for sympathize in Hebrews 4.15 is a compound word formed from the prefix meaning with, so kind of like co in English. The prefix with joined with the word suffer. So co-suffers. That Jesus co-suffers with us. So this is not a cool and detached pity. It is a depth of solidarity such as is echoed in our own lives most closely only as parents to children. You hurt when they hurt. Right? When you watch your kid go through something, it pains you that they're in pain. It's God with us, but it's even deeper than that. Still reading here. In our pain, Jesus is pained. In our suffering, He feels the suffering as His own, even though it isn't. Not that His invincible divinity is threatened, but in the sense that His heart is feelingly drawn into our distress. His is a love that cannot be held back when He sees His people in pain. He has an unrestrained withness withness always 
And so friends, in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your pain, whatever it is it may be, we all walked into this room watching online right now. We all have it. Whatever it may be, know that God sees you, not just detached, but with compassion and care. That He's with you, that He sympathizes with your weakness. And He hears you, He remembers His covenant. And then number seven, He knows. God knows. That's all it says there at the end of verse 25. And God knew. Specifically, He knows what's He knew their pain. And He knows our pain. Not just knows about, but He's near to His people. And this is very literal, guys. God understands their and our suffering because their and our Savior, whose blood seals this covenant promise, understands more about suffering than we ever will. And so when God says, I understand, I know, it's not like that friend who's like, you know, you tell him something horrendous that's going on in your life, and you're like, well, I know, I know. And you're like, no, you don't. You don't have a clue. God does have a clue. God does know. When He says, I know, child, I know. He really does. He probably understands, the, the irony is probably that He understands it better than you do. My friends, just let these four verbs that we've gone through right here, that God hears, that He remembers, that He sees, that He knows, let them encourage you that this crazy, big, holy, great I am, I am who I am with power over all things. We behold our God seated on His throne. You know, the mountains quake before Him. The demons run and flee. This God, the great I am, cares for you. Is that not crazy? Cares for you. For His people. Like little, teeny, tiny, 80 year of life across you know, all of eternity. Insignificant in many ways. Absolutely significant to God. Because He cares for His people. He has compassion for His people. He's moved towards His people. He acts for us because He loves us. I mean, you go to the New Testament and you think about the true statement here. No one ever came to Jesus seeking mercy and left empty-handed. Ever. He's touched with our infirmities. He knows. And He comes to deliver us. Maybe even today in your life. To deliver you from your sin and give you salvation. To deliver you from a burden that you are carrying and hanging on to. To deliver you from that guilt that weighs you down. Listen, I don't know who needs to hear this this morning. But God loves you. 
like he really does. Not just kind of, sort of. Not just when things are good and you, 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 you got it going. Not just when, you know, every, you, man, having your quiet times and just living for the Lord. No. He loves you unconditionally. He remembers His covenant. It's not based on your merit. He loves you. Remember that. Like, have you forgotten? We forget. God loves you. Drink it in again if you've forgotten. If you are one of His people, if you have trusted Christ, you are beloved of the great I Am. And so we've got all these words that tell us who God is. But perhaps the best way to kind of understand who God is and what He's like is to look at Jesus. Because remember in the book of John, chapter 8, He says, before Abraham was, I am. Seven times in John, ego I me, I am that I am. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. All these statements of Jesus claiming to be the great I am. And that's why He got killed. That's why they wanted to kill Him. Jesus didn't get killed. He allowed Himself to be killed for our sins. And so if you want to know what God is like, we see all of these things, but also look at Jesus and be shocked and awed that the great I Am loves even you and you and you and me and whole mess of sinners who've trusted in Christ. That makes no sense, but it's good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. That You don't cast us out when we fail You over and over. But with fatherly compassion, You care. You come near. You lift us up. And we don't deserve this. You didn't have to reveal yourself to us. You didn't have to make us. You didn't have to create us. You don't need us. You don't need our worship. You don't need our praise. You don't need anything. But you created us. And you've set even the ability to bring you glory into like you derive glory from, from, from us from remembering your covenant from rescuing us from our sin it's you're too big you're too Amazing to encompass, Lord. 
you bust the rules of grammar, but you also go beyond our vernacular and our vocabulary to describe how great you are and how much you love us and how thankful we are and how just wrapped up in your holiness and perfection and goodness and majesty. And We bow before you, God. Change us. Make us more like you. Help us to behold you as you have revealed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.